Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Shalom. It's good to be with you. So uh, we're continuing on with the small prophets, but let's cover our key questions here, which is how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? And this week, we get to start the prophet Amos. But some of the small prophets are so tiny that we didn't have time last week to touch on Joel. Would it be okay if I just mentioned a few favorite verses in Joel? You know, Joel is such a fabulous prophet. He's this tiny little three chapters, and he's living at the same time as as Amos. So I figured that was helpful. And it's all in 100, 150 years after the two kingdoms have separated. So it's uh, several years, you know, several, a couple of centuries before the Babylonian captivity and, and um, at least uh, 50 to 100 years before the Assyrians take the northern tribes. But Joel is written to these people who are um, facing the day of the Lord. And because of that, there's a lot of overlap with the restoration. And in fact, um, Moroni, in Joseph Smith history, Moroni quotes this. Joel, and if we read it in that light, it's in Joseph Smith history, chapter 1, verse 41. He says, this refers to the latter days. And my favorite verse here is in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is this beautiful chiastic parallelism. There's four sets of ideas, and um, it starts out with the um, day of darkness, this inhabitants are going to tremble, the Lord's going to come, and there's clouds of mourning that are spread. That's chapter 2, verse 2. And then chapter 2, verse 3, the fire is going to devour them. It keeps going on. And the chiasmic um, center is the fear of the people. But as we go to the idea that's repeated again, at the very end, We have just the opposite happening, and the Lord is going to be with his people, and they won't be fearful, and he's going to come and redeem them. Starting in chapter 2, verse 28, do you want to read the King James there? It's just beautiful. Yeah, Joel 2, 28. Mm -hmm. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Isn't that fabulous? That's what Moroni read. Yeah. Or, or recited to Joseph in similar words. Um, that's the hope that your daughters are going to be prophesying. Your sons and your daughters are prophesying. And the the visions and the dreams are going to come again. And the world is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord before he comes. And our prophet has begged us to increase our spirituality. I feel like if we can do that, we can then fulfill this prophecy and we can be those handmaidens who will, and and servants of God, right. men and women, who will be able to receive his spirit. I don't know if the word prophesy here is referring to necessarily foretelling the future or the way the Bible defines it is those who have a testimony that Jesus is their redeemer and their savior. And so their sons and daughters, the children will learn of the Lord and will have a witness of the Spirit in their youth is another way to interpret that verse. Um, If we're going to use the definition of what a prophet is according to the book of Revelation. But this has become a beloved little book and it's not too hard to understand. So maybe we can move on to Amos where we're supposed to be this week. I just couldn't leave that favorite verse out. Thank you.
So but Amos, who is Amos? Amos is also in this area, the same time period of about 750 or 775. He probably, Amos is actually from the time period of about 800 to 700. And he says that he comes at the time of the large earthquake. So we've got a date there, 760 to 750 BC. And it, it sounds like he is a prophet for a while. Actually, Amos is living in the south and he's called as a prophet to the north. So he's called to the enemy. Right. And there's somebody else who's called to the enemy at the same time. Do you remember Jonah is called to preach to the Assyrians? He's called right. to preach in Nineveh. So Jonah sort of takes a while to get used to this calling. And and Amos is also called to the enemy, but he is called to the north at the same time that Jonah is preaching to the Assyrians. Amos really is bearing a burden. His name means the bearer of a burden. And his his message is, you have a very short time, northern kingdom, before you will be taken unless you repent immediately. It says in the text that he lives about 11 miles south of Jerusalem in a small little shepherding town. It's about six miles south of Bethlehem. It's in the hill country of Judea. And he's a shepherd, but it also says that he works with these sycamore trees. Now, I looked into this. It's a type of a fig tree. And what they did in the ancient world is you would prick it during right before the harvest and it would ripen. So someone went around and had to poke a hole in all the fruit, but it's not something that grows up in his little town, which was up on a hillside. You have to go down to the valley. So he has to commute into work during the harvest season. He'll go someplace else. So he's a shepherd for most of the year, but during this short period of time, when the whole community comes down to help prick every piece of fruit to help it ripen, that was also his assignment. So he's he's just a, a shepherd kind of a person. And... Um, really a humble man. We also learn in his major themes, in addition to this serious need for repentance, but that God's judgment is coming mm. and the destruction is soon. I think one of Amos's burdens that he carries is this neglect of the poor. I see this repeatedly in chapters two and four and five and chapter 8, you know, God's covenant people have not taken care of the poor. And that's part of the law of Moses. It's part of the law of consecration. It's part of our responsibilities, even in the waters of Mormon. Right. Do you want to recite uh, the waters of Mormon there? I think he says, bear one another's burdens. And I don't have it memorized. But Yeah, I'll say I'll have it. I was actually, while you were talking, I was actually in the Book of Mormon a little bit looking through. And where I stopped was actually with Alma, Alma and Ammonihah. For me, this is like the Amos parallel here. He's he's going to, you know, the other parts of Israel who should know better, right? And and so so for me, that's that's where my mind was for 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 a lot of Amos. But but going back to your to your point about the poor and and the waters of Mormon there, that you'll mourn with those that mourn, right? And that you'll you support those that that need it. That need it, yeah. And that includes financial and food and just beautiful. Um, but they also have this horrific, idolatrous, cultic worship of other other false gods. And then they're shunning the prophets. He, he mentions that in chapters 2 and 7 and 8, that you have rejected the prophets. That means you're going to be destroyed. Don't reject the prophets. Um, 
the whole book is structured um, into three parts, and the beginning and the ending are parallels. But the first two chapters is this message to the nations, and he's accusing the nations. And it's interesting he 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 talks about Gaza and and Edom and Moab and Judah. And if you look on a map, I always keep a map out whenever I'm reading, and they're in a circle, and then right in the middle is. Israel. And then he says, and Israel, you're the worst of all. You know, it's like the center of a target. So he begins with the other nations and then zaps them. Chapters three to six are all about these warnings. Um, You know, I chose you from all the families of the earth and you have not carried your weight. You have not kept my covenant. You have broken it. And then he ends in chapter seven to nine with these five visions that are very interesting Anything else on the history that you want to talk about or themes or that you saw, or should we just jump into let's the jump text? In, let's jump into the text. Uh, one, one thing that just stands out to me, even as this is overview, is this idea of the shepherd. Mm. You know, uh, we just talked about Joel very briefly that, that um, Amos is your a servant. shepherd. Yeah, he's a shepherd. And all of that, all of that means we, we hear, we have Isaiah and, you know, all these other prophets that are very intelligent and, and high priests, you know, and so on. Um, well, and, and so, it's sweet because so his message this, is, come back to me. And so he's trying to gather his sheep. He's trying to gather the flock, and he's he's going after the lost sheep. I feel like he's saying, this is your last chance to repent. You know, destruction is—but it's so parallel to our day and age. I feel like Amos is written to us, not to them. Let's jump into the text. Okay. Um, chapter one, and I love this, the Lord will roar from Zion. You know, the Lord is this image of a lion here. And um, after we find out about the kings that he's serving with, as I mentioned, he's about 750. So he's being called to go up and preach at the time when Jeroboam II, this awful king up north, is reigning. And the Lord then in verse two roars like a lion. Such an interesting image. That's such an important symbol from a shepherd, right? When you hear the lion roar and the sheep hear it too, right? Even more important coming from an image of a shepherd. Yeah, you are scared. Your babies are at stake. But um, he says Mount Carmel is a beautiful mountain up in the northern area. It's it's close to the Mediterranean Sea. He says, um, the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. So, you know, the Lord, your most beautiful places are going to end up withering because you have not kept the covenant, this transgression. And as he goes through the message to the different nations, Damascus and Gaza and everything, they all get the same. You're all going to be destroyed. And then again, he says, the real problem, though, is you, Israel. 2 verse 8 has this whole catalog of sins, immorality and usury and materialism, idolatry. Sometimes it's helpful to read other translations as well, just to get a feel for this, how personally applicable this is when we use our own words, um, trying to get something for money, trying to do things rather than blessing people. It's it's really helpful to see it in our own vocabulary. But the message is that God says, I can't carry you anymore. Um, you have either got to correct your wrongdoings or you're going to be punished. And he says this phrase over and over in these first couple of chapters for three transgressions. So you've done the same thing over and over and over, and I've corrected you and corrected you. But the fourth time, I will not turn away the punishment. You've begged for forgiveness. You begged for, you've begged for leniency the first 
you know, and I've given it to you. But the fourth time, I'm going to have to punish you. You have not learned your lesson. And it will be much better to take your time out than it will be. Right. I still see this as a God of mercy. He's still saying, take a time out, have some time alone, and you will be able to come to your knees and come back to me, and then you'll be happier. Right. I I see this, um, you know, if the Lord's thinking, like, hey, what's the least amount of pain I can cause these, Mm -hmm. you know, these children of mine Mm -hmm. before they're on this path, which is the path of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't let anything happen, um, sorry, he doesn't, he doesn't have any correction, then you're living a life of wickedness, which is not happiness, Mm -hmm. right? And we talked about that last week, what what can happen with adultery. And I'm so glad that God clearly outlines what sin is, because we live in a day and age where uh, there's so much gray that people sort of sift if it makes you happy it's okay if so i love this idea of you know mercy um with a very clear line mm-hmm. um, to help line. to help mm-hmm. us train mm-hmm. right train and one of senses. the visions even uses the image of a plumb line or a straight line right. to make something clear exactly. yeah but chapter three starts god's call to repentance and this is where he says i want you to hear my word and it's really a um heart-wrenching to see how far they've gone because in verse 2 God chose Israel to help him to bless other nations and they're in worse shape they did Israel didn't do it you know they've broken the covenants and the consequences are serious um and I I just want to emphasize in the book of Amos he constantly talks about the neglecting of the poor right and I said it was a theme and here it is in chapter 3 verse 2 you have neglected the poor, and now you're going to be punished because of it. I see this also as he is a poor shepherd. Um, he is one of those probably who had been neglected, even though um, he's been living in the north only as a prophet, not as a shepherd. But um, prophets probably got l- less than shepherds did as far as um, how the Lord takes care of them, though. Our most famous verse, though, is chapter 3, verse 6 and 8. So let's get some context on that. Um, the Lord starts out chapter 3 by saying, you know, I brought you out of Egypt. I, I, I gave you the priesthood. I gave you the keys. I gave you prophets. I gave you extra responsibilities. And then he starts asking these rhetorical questions. Will a lion roar before they take the prey? No, they're going to be quiet. They're going to be as, as quiet as they can. And then they grab the prey and then they're going to roar, you know. And so he gives them these questions. Will a bird fall without a trap? Um, and then in chapter um, 3, verse 6, why don't you read that yeah. beautiful? So 3, 6, shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And if you notice in your um, Joseph Smith translation, there's a slight change there as well. In verse 6? In verse 7. Hmm. Oh, no. Yes, in verse 6. The Lord hath not done it is the Lord hath not known. Right. Um, interestingly. But verse 7, this idea that surely God will do nothing until he revealeth his secrets. There's another Joseph Smith translation in both 6 and 7. Um, is something that we hold on to because of our love for living prophets, love for those who that God has called and that we believe they can speak for God when God 
instructs them to do so. But I'm, you know, just revisiting all of the scriptures we've done through the Old Testament, this is a very clear pattern in the Old Testament, you know, that... That God will call a prophet. God will call a prophet and warn you that you're going off the deep end. You know, and we're in this period of time when prophets are everywhere, right? Amos, Joel, and so on. Yes. And, and because Same Israel time. is especially wicked, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so in context, this is a wonderful uh, statement and reassurance. I'm like, look, I'm not going to do anything until I warn you from the prophet. Yeah. Punishing you out of ignorance is not my way, right? The test, I'm going to give you the answer to the test first. Yeah. And then you can take the test. Yeah. But you've got to answer it correctly. I will will always reveal my secrets to the prophet. This is such a wonderful verse. It's also helpful to look at the word secret in the Hebrew. It comes from this intimate counsel, sort of a consultation idea. I've been told that the roots are that they are going to receive this intimate um, relationship again, sort of like knowledge, the same kind of root for that. That also an ordination is another translation, which is interesting. Hmm. But we are so blessed to have a living prophet who has a voice right now. And I assume as um, the time of the Lord comes that as long as we will continue to listen and heed the prophet's voice, they will be able to speak. But I feel like sometimes when we do not follow them, they are silenced. Yeah. we can. Moses would have taught a lot more if the children of Israel would have followed. I feel like we are they who silence the prophets. And if we follow them, they will continue to guide us. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful chapter there. And, um, of course, the preeminence of these modern prophets was something that Joseph loved. And he referred to this verse at least five different occasions I found. <laughs> you know, I opened up the Joe Smith papers online, and I found at least five different settings. One of them was in the spring of 1843. So he's up in Nauvoo, and he's giving a Sunday sermon. He says, It is not the design of the Almighty to come after the earth and crush it and grind it to power, powder. He will reveal it to his servants, the prophets. You know, he will not just come in and destroy the earth. You don't need to worry about God just coming in. He's going to tell the prophets. Just stay stay tuned. Yeah, the, the question I have is how do we recognize them, right? So if I, if I put myself in an Israel, I'm an Israelite. I've been taught the scriptures, you know, laws of Moses, these kinds of things. It's, it's integrated into my society. A lot of people I know, maybe my friends are off worshiping other idols. But I've, I've been taught. How do you know? How do I know Amos, right? Who's a shepherd? I think it's the same way we know our own prophets. I think you have to know the spirit. I think it's the spirit that testifies. Joseph always told people, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to get on your knees and ask God if the Book of Mormon is true. Or I want you to ask God if he's called a prophet. I I feel like our responsibility is to be in tune with the spirit. And that's why I think the prophet said, if you do not learn how to understand the Lord's language. If you're not preparing for personal revelation on a regular basis, you're going to be deceived. Yeah. Because you won't know how to identify truth. And so when we question the prophet's choices on anything that we think is political or medical or um, spiritual, uh, if we're questioning it, we're probably questioning divine inspiration. And we need I to think, have witnesses of the Spirit. Yeah, I, I love that that point because that has absolutely been, you know, has have had so many blessings in life when I'm listening to whoever, whatever it may be, you know, um, not just general conference, but my local sacrament meeting. And a 14-year-old gets up and gives a lesson uh, or at state conference and so on, you know, people I've never met. Um, 
but you hear something that you rings hear truth. It and, it, and, it, and it resonates in my heart and helps change my heart, right? Um, you know, with that spirit of prophecy. That's how we know. That's how we know. And so I feel like the Northerners had a hard time recognizing the prophets because of that lack. But the Lord promised us in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants that even those who rejected the prophets will have an opportunity to learn yeah. again in a different environment. You know, he's a loving God. Of course, they're going to have to suffer for their own sins because they chose not to repent. Right. So it is not an easy road, but the whole purpose is for us to grow and learn and become more Christ-like, to develop these attributes that he's encouraged us to do of charity and hope and faith. And I, God is just absolutely perfect. It's amazing to sit down and think about it sometimes. But Amos next prophesies of Israel's exile. And it comes about 30 years later, maybe 20 years, because I don't know exactly when some of these prophecies were given during his tenure of, of preaching. But Assyria does come. And as I read it, it sounds like also the day of the Lord will come again, and we are going to be in the same boat. Some of these verses are pretty easy to understand, and others are a little tricky. Look at verse 6. This is a little tricky. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Okay, cleanness of teeth? <laughs> so yeah. I looked up a couple other translations. I have given you lean teeth. I'm thinking, lean teeth? When are your teeth clean or your teeth lean? Well, when there's not enough food. I see. So I think this is referring to, because the very next phrase is this idea of withholding the rain. So I think we're talking about a time of famine, which is, I believe, why we need a year's supply of food. But some of these are a little bit tricky to read in King James. So let's, let's so keep going. So it makes going. sense. And, a want, and the rest of verse 6, and a want of bread in all your places. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then keep context. going. Yet, ye, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Seven, and also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece who are upon it rained not withered. Yeah, yeah. So the Lord is in control of the natural disasters. The elements yeah. are under his control and the rain right now falls on the wicked and the righteous. But there will come a time when some people will be getting rain and others will not. It sounds to me a little bit like at the time of the Egyptian, it sounds to me a little bit like the time of Moses. Right. When the plagues were on the Egyptians, but not on the um, Hebrew slaves in Goshen. And that's what that sounds like. Let's keep going. And unless you want to talk a little bit more about that idea, because it, it does sound like the Book of Mormon to me. Um, the Lord is going to either chasten his people or they're not going to remember him. And so yeah, he's going to give them famine. He's going to worms and pestilence, and he's going to overthrow them. He even talks about earthquakes. You know, all these are witnesses because they're not hearing his voice. And so he's giving them very dynamic witnesses so that you'll go to your knees. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's, I mean, this seems over and over again in the Old Testament, right? If, you, if you're wicked, you get punished by natural disasters and, and so on. Or if you're righteous... Um, you're sheltered from it's these. It's just easy to see because we're taking a bird's eye view of history and much harder for us to see in our lives because we're down in the details. Right. I think so too. One of the things that does show up again, and this this shows up in the Book of Mormon again, uh, less so with natural disasters, but the specific example I'm thinking of is um, uh, captivity, right, by the Lamanites of the Nephites because they were wicked, right? Yep. But there's a small batch of righteous people, right, with, mm -hmm. with Alma. 
And they escape miraculously, of course, through direct communication with the Lord. But after a lot of trials. Exactly. They still have to go through a lot of trials because they disobeyed the prophet Abinadi twice. That's right. So they had to pay the consequences. But because they were following the prophet, they got out of it. That's right. And there's also the rest of the people that they left who fell into captivity, had a little bit rougher. Mm -hmm. And they eventually are delivered. Um, not yeah. in the same way, not in the same miraculous way. And, and right? longer, took them longer. Took, took them longer. So this idea, as you mentioned earlier, the rain falls on the wicked and the righteous. And then there's times where the righteous are absolutely favored of the Lord is a recurring theme. Also, the Lord will strengthen us to endure the challenges that he gives us if we're... So our, our burdens are made right. And this has happened in my life. If I zoom in individually, the challenges are still there. It's just, I've become capable and they don't feel like much of a challenge anymore, right? If I go back because to my 15 year old self, exactly. The things, the problems I had when I was 15 or 20, right? Are, uh, you know, that I've overcome with the Lord, just, they're still there. They're just not much of a challenge anymore. What a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, God is a healer. That's a blessing. Let's move on to verse 11. I'm still in chapter four, mm-hmm. verse 11 and 12. Do you want to read that? Amos 4.11. I've overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, that's pretty bad. Yeah. So right now, you guys are as bad as like Sodom and Gomorrah. And ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Keep going, 12. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. They're going to be destroyed, so you better prepare to meet God. And that's the call to repentance that starts chapter 6. And Amos gives again this example of idolatry. Seek good and not evil. That word seek is interesting. He uses it multiple times throughout the Hmm. chapter, the book. And it's often by different things. Seek the Lord, seek good, seek, you know, he'll use a different word for it. But seek is one of his themes that I, moving down to verse 24 of chapter 5. Let judgment run down as water and righteousness as the mighty stream. The whole thing is Hebrew poetry, and I haven't been pointing this out, how beautiful it is. Um, But chapter 6 begins again with our woes, and it's sort of a repeat from chapter 4. Woe to them that are ease in Zion, who feel secure in Zion. Nephi quotes this. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and I think the reason why Nephi quotes Amos here is because it is needed in our day and age. And it obviously is needed in most day and ages, but... I, I felt this especially true in our day and age. Uh, you know, woe unto the Middle East. I feel like we have a pretty good here, oh, especially if you're in the U.S., right? It is just such a life of ease compared to our forefathers. That's right. And so the, the problem I have with that is... Where is that opportunity, if it's not coming from us, to get on your knees and understand what the Lord has in store, right? Well, and Nephi explains part of that. Let's just, I'm going to read here from 2 Nephi 28. Where This is verse 24. Yeah. Wherefore, woe be unto him that are ease in Zion. Woe be unto him that crieth, all is well. Yea, woe be unto him that hearkeneth unto the precepts of men. To mm-hmm. me, that is who follow the social customs. And even with our law of chastity, it is so hard to now say what is right and wrong in our world because the law of chastity is no longer, you know, he says it's the precepts of men. Yeah. It's not the precepts of God. Who denieth the power of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Yea, woe be unto him that saith, we have received and we need no more. Then he goes on, woe to the riches. 
that are lying around. You have too much spare time on your hands. And as a result, you're walking on the poor. It just mm-hmm. kills me the way he describes this here. You know, you're, you're giving up the poor for a pair of shoes. And I thought, oh, how many people have more shoes than they need? Yeah. Um, this is, and other people do not have shoes that they need. You know, he's, he's just laying it out loud and clear. History is repeating itself. Yeah. I think for me, this is a verse that I constantly use to check my own engagement with the poor. Good for you. Am I, am I at ease in Zion? I'm like, I think I am. I need to go find someone who needs help because we have our own little bubbles, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. We can always go serve. Volunteer is such a fabulous place to go. We as our Savior said, he came to minister and not to be ministered unto. Yeah. So if we want to walk where Jesus walks, we go serve. Yeah. We go minister. Verse 12 I, is a little tricky in the King James. Uh, I'll read it in the NIV. You've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. So it's like the land of, of Gilgal, you know. It, it was a sacred space and they've turned it into something wicked. You know, it's just tragic and it's painful to God. And then we end with these last five visions, chapter seven, eight, nine. And it ends with a glimmer of hope. But the visions are so interesting because we start out with this uh, devastation with locusts in chapter seven. Right. And anytime I hear locusts, I automatically think of Egypt. Exactly. You know, right back my, to my Moses. Yeah. And um, even the book of Revelation says at the last day, locust, but they're going to be like scorpions. It's going to be worse. You know, the dust is going to turn into it. You know, it's much, much worse. But it says that the first harvest is going to be the king's share. And then the second harvest is going to be devastated by these locusts, by these grasshoppers or whatever. And the people's share, you know, so the king takes his first and then the people get the rest. And then these locusts are going to come and eat it all up. So mm. there's not going to be any food for anyone other than the very, very wealthy. And so he says, I want you to ask God for help. I want you to depend on him. I want you to be humble enough. What I'm trying to teach you is that I can provide. So I'm going to take it away, and I want you to learn to ask for help. And Amos pleads with the Lord, "Um, please, um, don't do that. Don't do that. Then the Lord gives him another vision. But it's interesting because um, in chapter 7, verse 3, it says, The Lord repented, which Joseph Smith changes as, you know, that um, Jacob repented. And it said, it shall not be. So Enoch begged not to do that. And the Lord said, I won't. Mm. According to the Joseph Smith translation there in verse three. So then the second vision comes, this scorching fire. And again, I feel like the Lord is giving this vision in chapter seven, verse four and five, so that they would come to their knees and Amos is just terrified and begs the Lord to stop it. And again, in verse six, the Lord again says, okay, I'll give you some more time. Mm. Do you remember in chapters one, two, and three, he kept saying, I'll give you three chances yep. and the fourth time you're getting it. Yep. And I, I see this in the visions too. Mm. But in the third vision, there's God does not change it. He does not destroy everything. You see this crooked path, this crooked wall, and he needs a, he has a vision of a plumb line, which I... I think it's just like a plumb bob. It's trying to make something straight. You know, it's a weight at the end of the string. And he's trying to make sure that they are centered. But they've been going crookedly. It hasn't, the building is is going awry. And yeah, can I talk a little bit about that? Yeah, go so right I, ahead. I have a little bit of a civil engineering background. So, oh, good. So My civil engineer right here. Bit, go right ahead. So a plumb line is still used today. In fact, oh, when, you see, when you see people out with their little surveying tools, it's all digital. 
but there is still a plumb line so you can understand and see where sensor is. Because if your surveying is off, the whole thing is off. And it's multiplied by distance. And if, if you say distance, replace distance with time here, when you're building a wall, if the bricks aren't plumb, it will fall. It may not fall today or tomorrow, but it'll fall, right? Uh, almost inevitably. And so it's, it's absolutely vital. And this tiny little tool, which you mentioned is just a string with a weight on the end, <laughs> is followed. And so for me, it's like, you know, the commandments are simple, <laughs> right? And if you follow them and you're building your foundation with this very simple tool, it'll last a very long time. And if you don't, because it's, it's, it can't, you can't be bothered, right? It, it'll fall. Well, and it sounds to me like Amos realizes that the people are crooked. Yeah. That they are not straight with God. They are not centered. And so he does not ask the Lord to take this away. And they will have to pay these consequences. One last thing about the plumb line is you have to be still for some time for it to work. Interesting. Right? Because it'll sway for a little bit. And so I love that too. And there's times like, you know what? Especially in the latter Patience. days, how can you be still with your always on your phone, et cetera? This is my, this is my mm-hmm. own foible too, right? Yes. Finding time and space to be still and to focus on God. That's one reason why I love the temple. Mm. I'm able to put aside all distractions and try to focus on my covenants and blessing others. Okay, let's move on to chapter eight for the fourth vision. He sees this basket of summer fruit in chapter eight, verse one and two. Mm -hmm. And it's again followed by a vision of destruction because the fruit is ripe. It's already for harvest and then it's going bad. It's, It's not, it's ripe for judgment is what it is. And again, he attacks those who are seeking to make money, that they are prioritizing um, their finances and their well-being more than they're financing the needs of their fellow man. Mm. And he says that he's going to send destruction. God is going to cause an earthquake. He's going to, and Amos accepts that punishment. He, and we see this being fulfilled. And Israel um, has an enormous earthquake that is well known that came um, about this time. But Assyria comes in, of course, and destroys the northern kingdom. Right. And some of the southern Judah, remember everybody under Hezekiah and Isaiah's help comes into Jerusalem in the in the city wall and the besiege does not work. Hezekiah is able to bring water in. And so the southern tribes are not taken by Assyria, at least those people who got into Jerusalem. But those that were outside that didn't make it in were taken by Assyria. And then we end up in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. And this is a really powerful one. Do you want to start there? Yeah, Amos 8, 11 mm-hmm. and 12. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And I think it's about our day and age because listen listen to verse 12, keep going. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. We have people um, who can travel now more than any other time in the history of the world. Sea to sea, north, south, and they're seeking for enjoyment. They're seeking for um to knowledge. They're seeking for all sorts of things. They're trying to find purpose and meaning, but they're not finding it because of a spiritual thirst. And, you know, we know exactly what 
um, starvation looks like physically, but what does it look like spiritually? These people are always searching. I think the answer is to get, to increase your faith, increase your trust in the Lord, and then you can appease your starvation. You know, if you can increase your faith in Jesus Christ, and that's um, a tragic ending of chapter 8. Actually, uh, verse 14 is even is even just as bad. They that swear by the sin of Samaria, meaning the northern tribes, they say, thy God, O Dan, remember the false gods of the golden calves are now in Dan and Bathsheba. Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Bathsheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise again. You know, I, I'm going to get rid of this land. Which is fascinating because that's true in retrospect in history, right? Yeah. But at the time... They didn't know. But it was it was within a couple of decades. Yeah. So it was very soon thereafter. Yeah. Uh, although for us, a couple of decades seems like a long time. It's easier to see in history. Hopefully we can learn from history. And then his fifth vision is chapter 9. And he sees the Lord. It says he sees the Lord standing upon the altar. And he said, smite the lintel of the door and the post. This is chapter 9, verse 1. I don't know for sure if this is the Lord's altar, because we think of an altar as a place of sacrifice, a place that represents the atonement of our Savior. But he he's going to destroy it, and no one's going to get away in verses 2 through 4. And I'm wondering if the altar had become a place of wickedness, just like Gilgal was a sacred place once and then became a place of idolatry. And I also see it as this symbol for the Passover. Remember, the blood was put over the post and the lentil. That's right. So it is, and also Christ says, I am the way, I am the gate, I am the door, I am, you know, in different translations. And it's very helpful to see this here that he says, you're not going by me, you're going, you're trying to get, you're trying to get to heaven a different way, so I'm going to destroy it. Right. I'm going to close that door. I'm, I, this is not the way to do it. That's that's verse 2 and 3. Um, and then in verse 5, he says, The Lord God of hosts, remember God of hosts means God of the army. He's the general here. He that touches the land and it shall melt and all that dwell therein shall mourn. So that there's going to be this huge melting. And it goes on in verse 5. It shall rise up holy like a flood and sh- shall be drowned by the flood as in Egypt's time. And then he starts awakening the Israelites to these wicked people around them. This is verse 7. Are you not Israelites the same as the Cushites? That's the area of northern the Nile. Remember when he is destroying the Israelites and he says, hey, you guys are no different than the Israelites that I destroyed. And he uses all these different countries that we don't know anymore, but hopefully a good footnote will help you. Um, Kephor is is Crete and he goes on. Verse 8, behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. So I have heard so many times the God of the Old Testament is a God of justice and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. I completely disagree. Yeah. By destroying wickedness, is God being unmerciful? No, he's getting he's being rid merciful of— to the mer- to the mercy. <laughs> he is yeah. being so merciful even to the sinners because he's yeah. removing them from that filthy place. You know, if if you are in a place where you can't even see what's right and wrong, God is still a merciful God while he is implementing the justice because he is going to take you to a better place. 
You are going to learn your lesson in a place where you can learn it. You can't even distinguish between right and wrong because you're in such a place of wickedness. But in heaven, we're told in section 138, you can have a chance to learn again after your life is over. I think I go back to the verse that we read before that the whom the Lord loves, the Lord chastens. Oh, yes. And so with that same lens, I felt it in my life many times, right? I'm sure. Um, But as a nation, that's still very much true, right? If you keep down this path that you will destroy yourselves, you know, here's the least painful way to get you to change. It is all because God loves us. The justice is only because he's merciful. The justice is to help us learn and grow in a better place. And we send prophets to warn, as Amos said earlier, right? Yeah. And then he says in verse 8, I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. And I just immediately thought of Jacob 5, allegory of the olive tree. Right. I I love 9. Do you want to read verse 9? It's one of my favorite verses. Amos 9, 9. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Like a corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. I'm going to sift you, but don't worry. No one's going to fall upon the earth. I'm going to be very careful. I'll I'll take you someplace else, and it's going to be okay. And then verses 11 and 12, he talks about the restoration. It's going to come back. I'm going to raise up. In fact, in verse 11, he uses this interesting um, title. He says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. Now, David did not build the temple. That's Solomon's temple. Moses built the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle of David? Well, it's the tent of David. So I have to just step back and look for Christ. And I say, is the tent of David, the family of David, the people of David? And who is the stem to come out of the root of David? It's our Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. I don't know if you remember back that far. I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign. Remember Isaiah says, right. I, I will raise up out of the root of Jesse, which is David's forefather. And then as he continues to give this prophecy, I think about the Savior, he says, the plowman shall over be overtaken by the reaper. So the one who's plowing to plant the seeds, getting the soil ready to plant the seeds, is, is going to be overtaken by the person who's already doing the harvesting? And uh, do you remember when Christ is on the earth? He says, it looks like it's three or four months before the harvest, but really the field is white. I'm ready to harvest now. I see this as messianic in a spiritual harvest, just like he's talking about the the starvation for the word of God, the, the spiritual hunger, the spiritual famine. And here he's saying, and the best part about it is verse 13. The planter is going to be overrun by the one who treads the grapes. And the one who treads the grapes, of course, is our Savior. Right. I will tread the winepress alone, Isaiah recorded from our Savior. So when Christ comes, he will even be faster than those of us who are trying to plant. You know, he, the atonement is going to cover all. It's going to take care of everything. And this is the prophecy of the time of the Lord, I believe, as well as his first coming and second coming. But in verse 14, he says, I will bring my people Israel back from exile. I'll rebuild their cities. They're going to live in them. I'll plant the vineyards. They're going to drink the wine again. I will plant them on their land. But I think this doesn't have to necessarily just be physically the land of Israel. I think it's also spiritually as well. And all the promised lands where the Lord has taken the children of Israel. I, I love that, it's, you know, going through this whole context of, of Amos, especially where he talks about the spiritual starving after talking about the physical starving, 
it's absolutely appropriate to think about this spiritually, right? Because Amos, I think, is pointing us for that. Mm-hmm. And so I think about this verse 14, which is my favorite verse in this chapter, um, to build the waste cities just personally and spiritually, right? We've made all these mistakes. We've suffered the consequences of our sins, but we will rebuild those, you know, plant the vineyards, drink the wine uh, thereof, make gardens, eat the fruit of them. So this idea of spiritual renewal, this idea that you are, you know, in the presence of the Lord effectively, right? With this. And I love, I hadn't thought of it in a temple text, but we are. Look at verse 15. They shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, thus saith the Lord God. Mm. And the land that Lord has given us is is himself. He, you know, his house, we are invited into his house. That is his land. And may we keep our covenants. Yeah. The message of Amos, follow the prophets. Yeah. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.